Section 21 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 5 Van Part 2 For a week now, Van had been my undivided property and was the object of tender solicitude on the part of my German orderly, Preuss, and myself. The colonel had chosen for his house the foot of a big pine tree up a little ravine, and I was billeted alongside a fallen ditto a few yards away. Down the ravine, in a little clump of trees, the headquarters stables were established, and here were gathered at nightfall the chargers of the colonel and his staff. Custer City, an almost deserted village, lay but a few miles off to the west, and thither I had gone the moment I could get leave, and my mission was oats. Three stores were still open, and, now that the troops had come swarming down, were doing a thriving business. Whiskey, tobacco, bottled beer, canned lobster, canned anything, could be had in profusion, but not a grain of oats, barley, or corn. I went over to a miner's wagon train and offered ten dollars for a sack of oats. The boss teamster said he would not sell oats for a cent apiece if he had them, and so sent me back down the valley sore at heart, for I knew Van's eyes, those great soft brown eyes, would be pleading the moment I came in sight, and I knew more, that somewhere the colonel had made a raise, that he had one sack for Preuss had seen it, and Chunka Witko had had a peck of oats the night before, and another that very morning. Sure enough, Van was waiting, and the moment he saw me coming up the ravine, he quit his munching at the scanty herbage, and with ears erect and eager eyes came quickly towards me, whinnying welcome and inquiry at the same instant. Sugar and hardtack, delicacies he often fancied in prosperous times he took from my hand even now he was too truly a gentleman at heart to refuse them when he saw they were all i had to give but he could not understand why the big colt should have his oats and he van the racer and the hero of two months ago should starve and i could not explain it that night Preuss came up and stood attention before my fire, where I sat jotting down some memoranda in a notebook. Lieutenant, I can't stint it no longer yet. Dot general's horse he got oats again in decent abend, und ven he got nuttings, und he look und look. He ought dot gold und den at me look, und I couldn't stint it, lieutenant and Preuss stopped short and winked hard and drew his ragged shirt-sleeve across his eyes. Neither could I stunt it. I jumped up and went to the colonel and begged a hatful of his precious oats, not for my sake but for Van's. Self-preservation is the first law of nature, and your own horse before that of all the world is the cavalryman's creed. It was a heap to ask, but Van's claim prevailed, and down the dark ravine, in the gloaming, Preuss and I hastened with eager steps and two hats full of oats, and that rascal Van heard us laugh and answered with impatient neigh. He knew we had not come empty-handed this time. 
Next morning, when every sprig and leaf was glistening in the brilliant sunshine with its frosty dew, Preuss led Van away up the ravine to picket him on a little patch of grass he had discovered the day before, and as he passed the colonel's fire a keen-eyed old veteran of the cavalry service, who had stopped to have a chat with our chief, dropped the stick on which he was whittling, and stared hard at our attenuated racer. "'Whose horse is that, orderly?' he asked. "'De adjutants, colonel,' said Preuss, in his laboured dialect. "'The adjutants? Where did he get him? Why, that horse is a runner,' said Black Bill, appreciatively. And pretty soon Preuss came back to me, chuckling. He had not smiled for six weeks. "'Ben, he feels pully this morning,' he explained. Dot Colonel Royal, he speak met him, unt pet him, unt ven, he laugh, unt kick up him met his hint legs. He get vel pretty quick yet. Two days afterwards, we broke up our bivouac on French Creek, for every blade of grass was eaten off, and pushed over the hills to its near neighbor, Amphibious Creek an eccentric stream whose habit of diving into the bowels of the earth at unexpected turns and disappearing from sight entirely only to come up surging and boiling some miles farther down the valley had suggested its singular name it was half land half water explained the topographer of the first expedition that had located and named the streams in these jealously guarded haunts of the red men over on Amphibious Creek we were joined by a motley gang of recruits just enlisted in the distant cities of the East and sent out to help us fight Indians. One out of ten might know how to load a gun, but as frontier soldiers not one in fifty was worth having. But they brought with them capital horses, strong, fat, grain-fed, and these we campaigners levied on at once. Merritt led the old soldiers and the new horses down into the valley of the Cheyenne on a chase after some scattering Indian bands, while Black Bill was left to hammer the recruits into shape and teach them how to care for invalid horses. Two handsome young sorrels had come to me as my share of the plunder, and with these for alternate mounts I rode the Cheyenne raid, leaving Van to the fostering care of the gallant old cavalryman who had been so struck with his points the week previous. One week more, and the reunited forces of the expedition, Van and all, trotted in to round up the semi-belligerent warriors at the Red Cloud Agency on White River, and as the war-ponies and rifles of the scowling braves were distributed among the loyal scouts and dethroned macpilota old red cloud turned over the government of the great sioux nation oglalas and all to his more reliable rival sintagaliska spotted tail van surveyed the ceremony of abdication from between my legs and had the honor of receiving and a special pat and an admiring wachte from the new chieftain and lord of the loyal sioux his highness spotted tail was pleased to say that he wouldn't mind swapping four of his ponies for van and made some further remarks which my limited knowledge of the brule dakota tongue did not enable me to appreciate as they deserved 
the fact that the venerable chieftain had hinted that he might be induced to throw in a spare squaw to boot was therefore lost and van was saved early november found us after an all-summer march of some three thousand miles once more within sight and sound of civilization van and i had taken station at fort d a russell and the bustling prairie city of cheyenne lay only three miles away here it was that van became my pet and pride here he lived his life of ease and triumph and here gallant fellow he met his knightly fate once settled at russell all the officers of the regiment who were blessed with wives and children were speedily occupied in getting their quarters ready for their reception and late in november my own little household arrived and were presented to van he was then domesticated in a rude but comfortable stable in rear of my little army house and there he slept was groomed and fed but never confined he had the run of our yard and after critical inspection of the woodshed the coal hole and the kitchen van seemed to decide upon the last named as his favorite resort he looked with curious and speculative eyes upon our darky cook on the arrival of that domestic functionary and seemed for once in his life to be a trifle taken aback by the sight of her woolly pate and ethiopian complexion hannah however was duly instructed by her mistress to treat van on all occasions with great consideration and this to hannah's darkened intellect meant unlimited loaf sugar the adjutant could not fail to note that van was almost always to be seen standing at the kitchen door and on those rare occasions when he himself was permitted to invade those premises he was never surprised to find van's shapely head peering in at the window or head neck and shoulders bulging in at the woodshed beyond yet the ex-champion and racer did not live an idle existence he had his hours of duty and keenly relished them office work over at orderly call at high noon it was the adjutant's custom to return to his quarters and speedily to appear in riding dress on the front piazza at about the same moment van duly caparisoned would be led forth from his paddock and in another moment he and his rider would be flying off across the breezy level of the prairie cheyenne as has been said lay just three miles away and thither van would speed with long elastic strides as though glorying in his powers it was at once his exercise and his enjoyment and to his rider it was the best hour of the day he rode alone for no horse at russell could keep alongside he rode at full speed for in all the twenty-four that hour from twelve to one was the only one he could call his own for recreation and for healthful exercise he rode to cheyenne that he might be present at the event of the day the arrival of the transcontinental train from the east he sometimes rode beyond that he might meet the train when it was belated and race it back to town and this this was van's glory the rolling prairie lay open and free on each side of the iron track and van soon learned to take his post upon a little mound whence the coming of the express could be marked 
and as it flared into sight from the darkness of the distant snow shed, Van, all a tremble with excitement, would begin to leap and plunge and tug at the bit and beg for the word to go. Another moment, and carefully held until just as the puffing engine came well alongside, Van would leap like arrow from the string, and away we would speed, skimming along the springy turf. Sometimes the engineer would curb his iron horse and hold him back against the downgrade impetus of the heavy pullmans, far in rear. Sometimes he would open his throttle and give her full head, and the long train would seem to leap into space, whirling clouds of dust from under the whirling wheels, and then Van would almost tear his heart out to keep alongside. Month after month, through the sharp mountain winter, so long as the snow was not whirling through the air in clouds too dense to penetrate, Van and his master had their joyous gallops. Then came the spring, slow, shy, and reluctant as the springtide sets in on that high plateau in mid-continent, and Van had become even more thoroughly domesticated. He now looked upon himself as one of the family, and he knew the dining-room window, and there, thrice each day, and sometimes at odd hours between, he would take his station while the household was at table and plead with those great soft brown eyes for sugar. Commissary bills ran high that winter, and cut loaf sugar was an item of untold expenditure. He had found a new ally and friend, a little girl with eyes as deep and dark as and browner than his own, a winsome little maid of three whose golden sunshiny hair floated about her bonny head and sweet serious face like a halo of light from another world. Van took to her from the very first. He courted the caress of her little hand and won her love and trust by the discretion of his movements when she was near. As soon as the days grew warm enough, she was always out on the front piazza when Van and I came home from our daily gallop, and then she would trot out to meet us and be lifted to her perch on the pommel. And then, with mincing gait, like ladies' palfrey, stepping as though he might tread on eggs and yet not crush them, Van would take the little one on her own share of the ride. And so it was that the loyal friendship grew and strengthened. The one trick he had was never ventured upon when she was on his back, even after she became accustomed to riding at rapid gait and enjoying the springy canter over the prairie before Van went back to his stable. It was a strange trick. It proved a fatal one. No other horse I ever rode had one just like it. Running at full speed, his hoofs fairly flashing through the air, and never seeming to touch the ground, he would suddenly, as it were, change step and gallop disunited, as we cavalrymen would say. At first I thought it must be that he struck some rolling stone, but soon I found that when bounding over the soft turf it was just the same, and the men who knew him in the days of his prime in Arizona had noted it there. Of course, there was nothing to do for it but make him change back as quick as possible on the run, for Van was deaf to remonstrance and proof against the rebuke of Spur. 
Perhaps he could not control the fault, at all events he did not, and the effect was not pleasant. The rider felt a sudden jar, as though the horse had come down stiff-legged from a hurdle-leap, and sometimes it would be so sharp as to shake loose the forage cap upon his rider's head. He sometimes did it when going at easy lope, but never when his little girlfriend was on his back. Then he went on springs of air. One bright May morning, all the different troops, as the cavalry companies are termed, were out at drill on the broad prairie. The colonel was away, the officer of the day was out drilling his own company, the adjutant was seated in his office, hard at work, over regimental papers, when in came the sergeant of the guard, breathless and excited. "'Lieutenant!' he cried. Six general prisoners have escaped from the guard-house. They have got away down the creek towards town." In hurried question and answer, the facts were speedily brought out. Six hard customers, awaiting sentence, after trial for larceny, burglary, assault with intent to kill, and finally desertion, had been cooped up together in an inner room of the ramshackle old wooden building that served for a prison had sawed their way through to open air, and, timing their assay by the sound of the trumpets that told them the whole garrison would be out at morning drill, had slipped through the gap at the right moment, slid down the hill into the creek bottom, and then scurried off townward. A sentinel down near the stables had caught sight of them, but they were out of view long before his shouts had summoned the corporal of the guard. No time was to be lost. They were malefactors and vagabonds of the worst character. Two of their number had escaped before, and had made it their boast that they could break away from the Russell guard at any time. Directing the sergeant to return to his guard, and hurriedly scribbling a note to the officer of the day, who had his whole troop with him in the saddle out on the prairie, and sending it by the hand of the sergeant-major, the adjutant hurried to his own quarters and called for Van. The news had reached there already. News of any kind travels like wildfire in a garrison, and Van was saddled and bridled before the adjutant reached the gate. "'Bring me my revolver and belt, quick,' he said to the servant, as he swung into saddle. The man darted into the house and came back with the belt and holster. "'I was cleaning your colt, sir,' he said, "'but here's the Smith and Wesson.' handing up the burnished nickel-plated weapon then in use experimentally on the frontier. Looking only to see that fresh cartridges were in each chamber, and that the hammer was on the safety-notch, the adjutant thrust it into the holster, and in an instant he and Van flew through the east gate in rapid pursuit. Oh, how gloriously Van ran that day! Out on the prairie the gay guidons of the troops were fluttering in the brilliant sunshine. Here, there, everywhere, the skirmish lines and reserves were dotting the plain. The air was ringing with the merry trumpet calls and the stirring words of command. Yet men forgot their drill and reined up on the line to watch Van as he flashed by, wondering, too, what could take the adjutant off at such an hour and at such a pace. "'What's the row?' shouted the commanding officer of one company. "'Prisoners loose!' was the answer shouted back, 
but only indistinctly heard. On went Van, like one inspired. And as we cleared the drill ground and got well out on the open plain in long sweeping curve, we changed our course, aiming more to the right, so as to strike the valley west of the town. It was possible to get there first and head them off. Then suddenly I became aware of something jolting up and down behind me. My hand went back in search. There was no time to look. The prairie just here was cut up with little gopher holes and criss-crossed by tiny canals from the main acequia or irrigating ditch. It was that wretched Smith and Wesson, bobbing up and down, in the holster. The Colt revolver of the day was a trifle longer, and my man in changing pistols had not thought to change holsters. This one, made for the Colt, was too long and loose by half an inch, and the pistol was pounding up and down with every stride. Just ahead of us came the flash of the sparkling water in one of the little ditches. Van cleared it in his stride with no effort whatever. Then just beyond, oh, fatal trick, seemingly when in mid-air, he changed step, striking the ground with a sudden shock that jarred us both and flung the downward-pointed pistol up against the closely buttoned holster flap. There was a sharp report, and my heart stood still an instant. I knew, oh, well I knew, it was the death-note of my gallant pet. On he went, never swaying, never swerving, never slackening his racing speed. But, turning in the saddle and glancing back, I saw, just back of the cantle, just to the right of the spine in the glossy brown back, that one tiny, grimy, powder-stained hole. I knew the deadly bullet had ranged downward through his very vitals. I knew that Van had run his last race was even now rushing towards a goal he would never reach. Fast as he might fly, he could not leave death behind. The chase was over. Looking back, I could see the troopers already hastening in pursuit, but we were out of the race. Gently, firmly, I drew the rein. Both hands were needed, for Van had never stopped here, and some strange power urged him on now. Full three hundred yards he ran before he would consent to halt. Then I sprang from the saddle and ran to his head. His eyes met mine. Soft and brown and larger than ever, they gazed imploringly. Pain and bewilderment, strange, wistful pleading, but all the old love and trust were there as I threw my arms around his neck and bowed his head upon my breast. I could not bear to meet his eyes. I could not look into them and read there the deadly pain and faintness that were rapidly robbing them of their luster, but that could not shake their faith in his friend and master. No wonder mine grew sightless as his own through swimming tears. I, who had killed him, could not face his last conscious gaze. One moment more, and swaying, tottering first from side to side, poor Van fell with heavy thud upon the turf. Kneeling, I took his head in my arms and strove to call back one sign of recognition. But all that was gone. 
Van's spirit was ebbing away in some fierce, wild dream. His glazing eyes were fixed on vacancy. His breath came in quick, convulsive gasps. Great tremors shook his frame, growing every instant more violent. Suddenly a fiery light shot into his dying eyes. The old high metal leaped to vivid life, and then, as though the flag had dropped, the starting drum had tapped, Van's fleeting spirit whirled into his dying race. Lying on his side, his hoofs flew through the air, his powerful limbs worked back and forth swifter than ever in their swiftest gallop, his eyes were aflame, his nostrils wide distended, his chest heaving, and his magnificent machinery running like lightning. Only for a minute, though, only for one short, painful minute. It was only a half-mile dash, poor old fellow, only a hopeless struggle against a rival that never knew defeat. Suddenly all ceased as suddenly as all began. One stiffening quiver, one long sigh, and my pet and pride was gone. Old friends were near him even then. I was with him when he won his first race at Tucson, said old Sergeant Donnelly, who had ridden to our aid, and I knowed then he would die racing. End of section 21 End of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King